The Tom Woods Show, episode 1313. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, when you criticize the Federal Reserve, you get all these lackey-style responses. Why the Fed has made the economy more stable. You don't want to go back to the 19th century, do you? All kinds of arguments like that. Well, you can blow those and others out of the water with my free ebook, Our Enemy, the Fed. Grab it at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. I've got a few items that I want to talk about today that all have something in common. In each case, you've got something the private sector is doing that objectively benefits the poorest people. And in each case, the private sector is condemned for doing it. And that, in fact, helped to form one of Woods's laws. I got several laws. I've forgotten what they are at this point. Uh, Remember one or two of them. One of them is a recent one. No matter whom you vote for, you always wind up with John McCain. Now, that may be, maybe there's an exception brewing. We'll have to see with Trump. I don't know. But I've got a bunch of these. And one of them is that whenever the private sector comes up with some innovation that benefits the poor, it will be condemned for one reason or another. It'll be condemned. That innovation will be condemned. And somebody will say it should be curbed or abolished. So I want to go through a few examples because The other day, I saw an article at Mises.org by Bill Anderson, who's been a guest on this program a couple of times, on dollar stores, the dollar store, and claiming that the dollar store perpetuates poverty. I just cannot imagine that somebody could think that, that somebody's brain could be functioning, and it actually spits out the conclusion that dollar stores, which sell things for a dollar, could make people poorer. And so here's another thing that obviously benefits people who are poor, because there are a lot of things, by the way, that you can get at the dollar store that are genuinely just as good as uh, other. I mean, maybe not uh, everything that's there, but, you know, glass cleaner is pretty much the same. Any kind of glass cleaner you want to get, whether it's the top brand or at the dollar store, glass cleaner is glass cleaner. There are plenty of things that you can save money on there. So it. Anyway, so when I saw that, it just put me in mind of a couple of other things that I've written on in the past that have a similar theme. And and the first one of those was the old rent-to-own store. Oh, boy. I mean, there are villains in the world, and apparently one of the villains, one of the great villains, is the owner of a rent-to-own store. Now, some of you, no doubt, have read Walter Block's classic book, Defending the Undefendable. I believe he has a second version of that book, a second volume, and he takes classes of people who are unpopular, and he basically uh, restores their reputations. So, for example, the slumlord, the person whose crime is to make cheap housing available to people, when not one of his critics ever does anything for the poor at all, and it doesn't get houses for them or anything. And so Walter goes and shows, like, for example, the middleman. People think the middleman is just a parasite. The middleman serves no purpose. The middleman serves a crucial purpose, linking consumers with the goods that they want and performing a service that people and firms higher up in the in the chain of production don't know how to do. They're not, they don't know how to reach consumers. They don't know how to do marketing. They know how to manufacture. That's what they're good at. 
but they don't know how to necessarily to get things where they need to be and, and coordinate with the stores and everything. That's why you have the middle. So in other words, there, there are a lot of perfectly good reasons for perfectly despised people, advertisers, Advertise nothing wrong with advertising in the abstract. Now you might not like a particular ad. Absolutely nothing wrong with advertising, marketing, all all these sorts of fiends and villains are defended vigorously by Walter. And in that category, although not actually in Walter's book, would be the owner of the rent-to-own store. Because the argument here is that, well, I assume you know how these stores work. You go in there. Generally, these stores are for people who have poor credit or no credit, or they have some delinquency on their record that just makes it completely impossible for them to see any way to acquire higher ticket items other than a mechanism like a rent-to-own store. That's what it's there for. It's for the most vulnerable people that nobody else is catering to, people who don't have a credit card, but they also don't have big wads of cash sitting around they can use to go buy appliances and furniture and whatever else they need. So they have the rent-to-own store. Now, obviously, when you're done making the payments on whatever the item is, television or whatever, you will wind up having paid a lot more for that television than if you had simply taken all the money at once and gone out and purchased it. Now, by the way, the way these rent-to-own stores work is that partway through the term of in which you're paying for it, you can make the full payment and just be done with it. Just the same way you can pay your mortgage off early. You can pay off that sofa early if you want to, and then you just own it from that point on because you've made all the payments and you own it. So that's the kind of argument that's being made, that people are going to be exploited by these stores. And in cases like this, I always feel like it's good to bear in mind the old adage of our friend David R. Henderson, the economist from the Hoover Institution at, at Stanford, and he says, uh, you're not helping the poor by looking at their list of options and eliminating the one they actually chose. So they actually chose to go to the rent-to-own store. How are you making them better off by just getting rid of the rent-to-own store? Then they have to choose an option that they obviously would uh, much rather avoid that they obviously viewed as an inferior choice. How does this help them? So instead of, this is just classic left liberal response. Instead of thinking, well, how can I serve the poor better than this terrible exploiting rent-to-own store? Let me open an institution of my own. Never, never, that's net, never happens. It's no, let's, let's shut down the existing thing that is solving an existing problem. Let's shut that down, even though people choose this option. All right, so I want to, I actually wrote a, as I said, I wrote a piece on this a long time ago. And at the time I wrote it, probably, you know, the, the pricing of big screen TVs or TVs that in my day we would have considered big screen, uh, maybe not by today's standards, uh, the pricing is going to be a little bit different because I, I wrote the article probably uh, 10 or 12 years ago. But I remember in writing the article, giving an anecdote from the Buffalo News, and it tells us the story of a woman who bought a used color television from a rent-to-own store, and she paid $80 a month. After she missed her fourth payment, they repossessed the television. 
And what they also note in the Buffalo News is that if she'd continued making the payments and she had paid all the way through for the entire payment term, she would have wound up paying over three times as much as what the TV would have cost at a retail store. Now, we can talk about the economics of this in a minute, but what's left out of these discussions a lot is is a more fundamental question. Why does her family need a 36-inch television when it's so financially unstable that it can't make a regular $80 monthly payment? Maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe they should just set aside that money, set aside 40 bucks a month, and then when you have uh, 280 you go out and you buy the TV in the store. Nobody's going to drop dead waiting if you just wait seven months to buy a TV instead of buying it now. Most people throughout all of human history had no TV whatsoever. So if you just wait to buy it so that you're not putting yourself in this position, isn't that the sensible solution? And why are we assuming that poor people are just too dumb to do this? Or that we, you know, it doesn't make sense to just give them advice, you know, save up for the TV, then go buy it. Simple. But also, when I was a kid, when I before I turned five, first house we lived in, our TV was about 10 inches, I would say. It was 10-inch TV, black and white. And that's what we had. And then later on, we got a larger TV. But even the larger TV was probably a 19-inch. I mean, you remember like in the early, mid-80s, all through the 80s, a 19-inch TV would have been considered a really, really, you know, good-sized TV. And we were perfectly happy with it. Well, today... You can get a TV that size, uh, let's say 13-inch TV, uh, for probably about what you'd pay for just one of the monthly payments that she was paying for that larger TV. So why, if you're that financially unstable, do you have to have a 36-inch television? Nobody had a 36-inch television as recently as the 1980s and maybe into the 1990s. So right off the bat, for this to be a tale of oppression is a, a bit of a stretch. I mean, the I don't understand why they insist on treating the poor as helpless imbeciles who can't make any sensible decisions whatsoever. Anyway, I came up with a list of the sort of excuses that would be made to account for self-destructive financial behavior like this, because that's what it is. It's not the rent-to-own store's fault. That's just dumb economic decision-making. So for us to blame the rent-to-own store, we would have to believe one or more of the following. Uh, First, that the consumer in question had no electronic store nearby. Second, that she may also not have had a car or any friends who had a car or any friends who had a car who knew how to get to an electronic store. Then she couldn't have used public transportation. We have to assume that. We have to assume she couldn't order the product online, probably because she didn't have the internet. So then we have to assume that she didn't know anybody who had internet access that she could use for 10 minutes. We also have to assume that if she had no friends, that she couldn't even go to the public library where she could get internet access for free. We also have to assume that even if she could have ordered the television online, she couldn't have done so because she didn't have a credit card. But on the other hand, you don't need a credit card to purchase merchandise from Amazon. You can just use a checking account. So now we're kind of really running out of excuses. Then now why can't she get it that way? But meanwhile, in spite of all this, this woman was treated as a helpless victim in the story about her in the Buffalo News. The bottom line is a rent-to-own store allows poor people to acquire household items that, in some cases, nobody, rich or poor, could have had even a generation ago. 
and on terms that no one else is willing to extend to the poor. And you would think that would count for something. Somebody's got to credit them for this. But so-called activists don't see it that way. So I quoted uh, an East Side activist named Michelle Johnson. And she says, you're stuck paying $20 a week. And by the time you're done paying for it, you've paid three times what it's worth. It's robbery. But of course, that's also true for, in a sense, for 30-year mortgages. By the time I'm finished making the payments on my house, I paid far more than the house is, quote, worth. But the point is that the house is worth more to me in the present than in the future. So I suppose I could go live in a hut somewhere while I save up the money to buy the house in cash, but it turns out I'm willing to pay extra, a lot extra, to live in a house right now rather than hut now, house later. And that's also the logic of the rent-to-own store, being able to use the merchandise up front without a credit check, without having to pay out a substantial lump of cash. That's a valuable service. For a great many people, people will pay a premium for a valuable service like that. So I quoted, uh, I cited an example of somebody, a single mom, who was paying $184 per month for two beds for her children. Now, obviously, to me, what I take away from that is if there were another place where she could have purchased those beds more inexpensively, presumably she would have done so. So no matter how unattractive it seems to us, the rent-to-own store must have been her best option if that's the one she chose. The next best option might have been getting them even more expensively or maybe not to have any beds at all. And let's also remember, when I, when I wrote this article about rent-to-own stores, I got, and I, doggone it, I tried to find it, and I, I must have deleted it. It's killing me. But I got an email from either the owner or manager of a rent-to-own store, and he said, you don't know the half of it. He said, we spend probably half our time, no exaggeration, tracking down deadbeats who go and so-called rent our stuff, but they're basically just taking it. And we have to spend all this time and, and resources on collections. It's unbelievable. The idea that we're just making money hand over fist is absurd. We're spending it all trying to keep an eye on everybody and trying to make sure people make the payments. Or how about this? There's something called the Tax Refund Anticipation Loan, or we'll call it RAL, Refund Anticipation Loan. The idea here is that you're waiting for your tax refund to come through, and maybe you would like to have the money sooner than the government can get it to you. So you take out a, a refund anticipation loan, so then you can go spend that money on whatever you want to spend it on, and then when your tax refund comes through, then you pay back this loan. And the typical one of these loans is for about $3,000, and it costs you an $89 fee to take out one of these loans. Now, if you think of the fee as being an interest payment, then that does seem like a high interest payment, given that some of these people are, are taking these loans out for even just a week or 10 days, uh, maybe a few weeks or a month. And that's true. If, if, you, if you think of it not as a fee, but as an interest rate, then that's a high annualized rate. That's an annualized rate of 108%. Now, of course, nobody is taking these loans for a full year. But the point is, these are people who really don't have access to credit. I mean, it, it would probably make sense for uh, some people to just um, charge their purchases on a credit card and then you know, you have a month before the uh, 
credit card bill comes due, and then you use that time to wait, get your tax refund, get it deposited, then you can pay it off. You don't even need one of these tax refund anticipation loans. But again, you're dealing in cases like this generally with people who don't have access to credit or they have bad credit. So this really is the only option they have. They've got some emergency expense and they know they have this tax refund money coming along. Uh, or, or let's say I want to buy a $3,000 item and two weeks from now, it's going to go up to 5000 You know, the sale's going to be over. You think I wouldn't gladly pay $89 to have immediate access to my three grand so I can go save two grand on something I wanted to buy? You gotta be kidding me. I I'd pay that like you would see like dust in the air. I would because the the money would be moving so quickly from me to the the tax refund anticipation uh, people. You know, so this obviously makes people's lives better. I get the money that I have coming to me sooner than I otherwise would. But now what's been said against it is that's too much money, because some outside force is gonna tell us that's too much money. The critics did not say, well, we're going to have our own tax refund anticipation loans and we're only going to charge $10. No, of course not. That never happens. That never happens. It's not that we've come up with a better alternative. It's we're just going to tear down what's here. And so you have people who want to get rid of these these types of loans or, or put huge restrictions on them, but they have nothing to replace them with. So again, you're looking at the option the poor took You're taking it away and you're saying, boy, we sure have made their lives better. So either you're an idiot or you think the poor are idiots, that they're just dumb for having made that choice. But I think they are the the best position to evaluate their own situations. As for those who say most people who take out these loans don't know the terms or they're bamboozled or they're in a state of ignorance, they've actually done surveys about this and overwhelmingly people know exactly what the terms of the loan are. They they understand it completely. And most people report having had a, a very satisfactory experience with it. And they're glad they did it and they would do it again. Now, one thing that complicates this, of course, is that with the earned income tax credit, sometimes the poor are getting refunds on money they never actually paid in. It's more a subsidy than it is a tax refund. But let's abstract from that for the time being because that is not exactly a subtlety that is appreciated by critics of the tax refund anticipation loan. Okay, it's it's like saying, oh, the Bernie Sanders people, they just don't like crony capitalism. Nah, I'm pretty sure it goes beyond that and they're not gonna make your fancy libertarian distinctions between crony capitalism and capital. They're really not. They're really not interested in making those distinctions. And likewise, for people who criticize these types of practices, they're not making distinctions. So let's set aside that earned income tax credit that just might complicate the analysis a little bit and just assume that what we're dealing with here is people trying to get their own money returned to them, except quicker. And the people who are going to be condemned in this situation are the private actors who help them get their money back quicker. And What's not brought into this equation is why is it that they don't have their own money in the first place? Where did the money go that they don't now possess it? Well, of course, it's the government that's put them in this vulnerable position by taking their money in the first place. So if anybody should be condemned here, why is it not the government itself? Because, of course, the government gets away with all these sorts of things. It's the private sector 
where we're supposed to find a wickedness. And the state's failures, we just don't even acknowledge. But yet, if it weren't for the state, this guy wouldn't have been looted of his money in the first place. All right, now, before I move into the most delicious example of this type of phenomenon, of criticism of a private practice that obviously improves the welfare of the poor, let me say a little something about my good folks over at Skillshare. Here, too, is an amazing innovation that can help anyone, anywhere. Could you imagine living in a world where, for one little fee, you get access to 25,000 classes that you can use to improve your own skill set, to make yourself more employable, or to learn a skill you need for a side hustle or even start your own business? And you can just learn in the privacy and comfort of your home. And the topics range from marketing to finance, entrepreneurship, accounting, animation, film production, fine art, graphic design, music production, photography, writing, mobile development, web development, product management, culinary, crafts, and on and on and on. Well, you do live in that world. We live in an amazing world where that is all at your fingertips. And the most amazing part of it is that right now, my listeners are getting a special deal where you get two months of access to all 25,000 of these classes for free. That's ridiculous. You're getting two months of access to 25,000 classes that can make you more successful, more prosperous, more desirable as an employee, and a more successful entrepreneur, and it's for free for two months. How do you do that? Go over to Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree. Make sure that's the link. Skillshare.com slash WoodsFree. You're going to thank me. And if I were Michael Malice, I would say, you're welcome. All right. Now I want to talk about the dollar store thing. Now, it never occurred to me that dollar stores would be criticized as being predatory and exploiting the poor. I mean, I go into the dollar store from time to time. When my kids want to buy things sometimes, they just want to get a simple little thing. The dollar store is perfect for them because a lot of times what they need is equally serviceable, whether it's a dollar that they spend on it or $5. So if you want a little coloring book or something, you can easily go in there and get it. But now we've got critics claiming that dollar stores create poverty. I mean, you just, oh my gosh, it's like you'd have to try to even think that up. You know, I mean, a lot of the crazy things that people say about the economy, I think, well, all right. I mean, I can at least understand why they commit that error. I, I see the fallacy and I can see how it might be tempting to fall into that fallacy. This, I can't even remotely grasp why somebody would look at a dollar store where every single item costs $1 and say, now this is taking advantage of the poor. I, I just cannot possibly imagine that. So when I saw that our friend Bill Anderson had written a column on this, I thought, all right, this, this I just, uh, I had to see. So what the heck is the problem with the dollar stores? The article that uh, Bill Anderson is critiquing says dollar stores have succeeded in part by capitalizing on a series of powerful economic and social forces, white flight, the recent recession, the so-called retail apocalypse, all of which have opened up gaping holes in food access. But while dollar stores might not be causing these inequalities per se, they appear to be perpetuating them. 
The savings they claim to offer shoppers in the communities they move to makes them in some ways a little poorer. All right, well, what ways would these be? I mean, my, you would have to go to unbelievable lengths, I would think, to find some way that charging people a dollar for items is going to make them poorer. So what they're referring to in part is what they call food deserts, that there are parts of the country where it's harder to find fresh fruit, vegetables, uh, other healthful whole foods. And this is typically because of a lack of grocery stores, farmers markets, and the like. And they say these dollar stores, the food, and by the way, you don't go to the dollar store for food primarily, but the dollar stores mostly have processed canned foods. They don't have fresh foods and vegetables. And so what this, I guess, means is that because dollar stores have moved in and are not offering fresh food, is this somehow preventing other people from selling fresh food? What exactly would the logic of this be? Bill makes side reference uh, incidentally, to Korean immigrants who opened small groceries in places like uh, Los Angeles, New York, Baltimore, that did precisely this, that brought fresh food into the cities. And they were, well, not treated very nicely, uh, for obviously for racial reasons. Uh, they, they were victims of violence, sometimes murder, uh, very often hostility. The claim was that these Koreans are exploiting the local customers. So, yeah, I, I would just, I'd close my doors and say, all right, well, if you don't appreciate what I'm doing, then, you know, go pick your own apples or whatever. I mean, you know, I'll go find a place that appreciates me. So just a few years ago when there were riots in Baltimore, well, again, Korean-owned businesses were, were uh, looted and burned. And these were people who would, you know, their livelihood was to bring fresh food to one of these so-called food deserts and they were more or less driven out. See why you would blame the dollar store of all possible institutions on earth for the prevailing uh, situation. Uh, then we read, now then they, then they can't get their story straight about whether the prices are reasonable or too low or too high. So in one part of the uh, article, we read that uh, when economists compare the price of goods like flour and raisins of the same weight, they noticed that dollar store products were higher cost than those at the nearby Walmart or Costco. So, all right, so the dollar store actually turns out to be a slight ripoff, we're told. Now, by the way, like anything, you go to the dollar store, you don't buy every single item. You do do a little comparison shopping. And there are clearly some items where the dollar store is not price competitive, actually. But by and large, they are. And you just, you know, just do your due diligence as a consumer as you would in any other situation. You know, we're, we don't have an IQ of uh, 60, most of us. But then, on the other hand, exactly the same article says that the dollar store is undercutting other stores because its prices are so low. So what the heck? So in other words, there's nothing the dollar store could do to satisfy these people because somehow the dollar store is simultaneously too expensive and too cheap. But in a way, this story of rent-to-own stores and refund anticipation loans and dollar stores, even though these are not, let's say, the sterling examples of the free market, they're not the greatest innovations in the history of mankind, they're not nothing. They do help people. They help a lot of people. These really are just microcosms of a much larger story. And that larger story is that the private sector taken as a whole 
has improved the standard of living of the poor and everybody else overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. And we see dramatic inroads made in poverty rates all over the world over the past couple of centuries in countries where they weren't even wealthy enough to have a welfare state yet. So it couldn't be that the welfare state is really responsible for the reductions in poverty. The poverty reductions came before there really were substantial welfare states in these places. So no way the state can take credit for that. There, I mean, you can measure the standard of living of the poor in terms of living space per capita, the amount of clothing, the amount of the caloric intake, the life expectancy. We can talk about incomes. We can we can talk about um, well, I mean, it just goes on and on, right? I mean, there uh, we could we can even talk about the height of people because we've even seen that there's a gap between rich and poor in terms of height that has narrowed almost to nothing thanks to the market economy. And yet, just as in the case of the three examples I gave here, those specific examples, in the more general case of the overall market economy, you get exactly the same complaints about capitalism being exploitative and evil, when exactly the opposite is obviously and demonstrably the case. And meanwhile, the people in public life who earn the most cheers are the ones who spend their time condemning this system and saying, well, what we need to do is just seize resources and hand them to you folks. When it was precisely because the redistributors and the envious in our ranks had been beaten back long enough. That's George Reisman's formulation. They had been beaten back long enough that it was possible for capitalism to create all the wealth that it did. Now we're getting back into uh, envy as a virtue. It's incredible that those would be the people who would be cheered. They should be shunned in civilized society for taking for not, – not merely taking for granted, but seeking the destruction of the very institutions that have created such uh, stupendous wealth and incredible standards of living for all of us. So gratitude, gratitude is something we could all afford to have. That is in unfortunately short supply. In fact, before I leave you today, let me read you an email I got uh, years ago in response to this article I wrote on rent-to-own stores. And I actually, I somehow missed this email at the time. And when I was doing a search of my inbox, because I was looking for something related to rent-to-own stores, this email popped up and I could see that I had never opened it. I must have been busy and I just never got to it. And here's what this person wrote. While shopping at these stores is a self-made decision, it is a decision most of us, and by us I am representing a large group of poor or paycheck-to-paycheck people, wouldn't have to make if our situations were better. I have tried to find a higher-paying job, but nobody will hire me for those jobs. I have tried applying for more desirable forms of credit, but I always get denied. The more I get denied, the more desperate I become, filling out more applications for credit, which ironically serves to hurt my credit more. I write this coming from the belief that everyone is entitled to the same things. If you have an iPhone 6, why shouldn't I? If you make $50,000 a year, why shouldn't I? If college and learning and studying and school came easily to you, why should I have such a struggle with it? We both know the answer to the last question is based on something outside of anybody's conscious control. You cannot control things like rate of learning, etc. But since our economy stems from that, 
That is, the job you get is dependent on education, and the education you get is dependent on your ability to pay for it or your parents' ability to pay for it, then you really can say there is a whole group of people who are poor, have bad credit, cannot find a job or better job than what they have, and it's not their fault. I believe that this is where the U.S. federal government should step in and level the playing field. Uh, and then he says, obviously, you can't make businesses hire people to do jobs they totally aren't qualified to do, like being a heart surgeon if you don't have the training. He says, but if the pay were leveled out across the job market and you guaranteed every person seeking employment a job, you would make things more fair for everyone. If you equally distributed the wealth across America, everything else would follow suit. Rent would be more fairly priced, food prices, gas prices, car prices, etc. Financing would be available to everyone. So the next time you see someone walk into a rent-to-own store and you think to your rich, pompous self, what a bad decision he is making. He is such a lowlife. Also think to yourself, if I already own what he is going in there to buy, why shouldn't he also have what I have? Now, I could go through and critique that statement, but a lot of my episodes have kind of done that in one way or another on education and other stuff, and I think it would be exhausting. But I read that to you mainly for the attitude in there. I'm entitled to whatever I want. Could you imagine that? I'm entitled to just sit around and get what I want. And, and by the way, I mean, just this is just a, almost a trivial observation, but there's no way any of the luxuries we enjoy would ever have become available to us if everybody had insisted on having them immediately. What we love is the fact that new technology comes out. It costs a fortune. Only rich, eccentric people can afford it. And then they keep the market alive for it while innovators come up with cost-cutting measures that eventually make them within reach of the rest of us. But if you immediately said, we all need to have a plasma TV, that would just and, – and we're going to pass some law demanding that the price of plasma TVs can't be higher than $250, that'd be a great way to guarantee that the plasma TV industry goes away. But that's the least of the problems with this. I mean, I, I know I said I wasn't going to do this, so I'm not. But he says, I've tried to find a higher paying job, but nobody will hire me. He tells me nothing about what he's done to make himself worthy of being hired. Have you taken a course? Have you trained yourself on anything? Have you done an apprenticeship? Have you uh, taken a lower paying job and then stayed late? And then gone in early and stayed late over and over and over and gone to conventions and conferences on your own time and learned everything you possibly can. Doesn't sound to me like that. This type of person is not going to do that sort of thing. I mean, I'd be very surprised if that were the case. I've tried applying for more desirable forms of credit, but I always get denied. What have you done to work on your credit? Have Maybe more desirable forms of credit might be nice. So you start with something modest. You get a credit card where they're willing to give you a $500 um, you know, uh, credit limit. So you start there. Uh, you don't have to have the same credit card that uh, the Rockefellers have. Just start small and you build it up little by little. So anyway, anyway, I just it's just the attitude of this. And this is why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does well. And here we have libertarians who just know everything there is to know about everything. And they just they understand everything about how things work, and she can just go around and speak in slogans about it would be good if everybody had X. So therefore, we're going to pass a law requiring that everybody be given X, and then we just and then people cheer as if there couldn't possibly be any consequences about of this that uh, might be undesirable. That it's like they're not even capable of conceiving of that. If I want something, we demand it and we get it through violence, and there are no negative consequences. 
that's frustrating, but when you are appealing toward base envy, yeah, people are not going to demand to see your work. You know, They're not going to demand to see all the steps you took to get to the outcome of your reasoning. They're just going to go with it. So it's frustrating, but what can we do other than soldier on, right? What can we do other than continue and fight and uh, do our best against uh, the civilization wreckers out there? What else can we do? All right, that's it. If you enjoy what I'm doing and appreciate it, you can always become a supporting listener and warm my heart over at supportinglisteners.com. Just one of the many benefits you get is membership in our notorious private group, the Tom Woods Show Elite. It's so private, it's a secret group, which means you can't even find it. You can search all you want, and it will not come up. So you have to be put in there by me. So many, many good benefits await you over at supportinglisteners.com, not least of which is my esteem. So do check that out, and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.